It's easy to talk about the easy stuff. Work. Sports. But sometimes, we need to talk about the hard stuff. The difficult questions that linger in our minds, but we're afraid to ask. Is there truly a way to know right from wrong? Do advances in science undermine the authority of the Bible? Does God have anything to say about my depression? Does God hate me because I'm gay? Because I'm transgender? Is it just lights out when we die? Or is there something more? For too long, the church has avoided difficult conversations. Because, well, they're difficult. We're ready to change that. The afterlife, mental health, evolution, sexuality. This is a conversation about what God really has to say about these topics. Buckle up. This might get awkward. Uh, we're going to pray, but I have to say something real quick. Amy, this is my wife, she's on the worship team this morning, and we have two children, a four-year-old and an 11-week-old, and the 11-week-old has this tendency, like, if anything goes into his stomach, he, he shoots it right back out. Um, so I was holding him backstage just now, and I was just wearing a shirt, uh, I wasn't wearing a sport coat in the first service. The only reason I'm wearing this sport coat is just to cover up spit up. I'm, I'm not trying to look cool. I'm not trying to look presentable. None, no other reason, Dan, there's spit up on my shirt. So if you come and talk to me afterwards and I smell like spit up, it wasn't me. Okay? <laughs> it's my baby. Let's pray. God, we always need you. Every moment of every day, every hour. We need you to be here in our midst. We need you when, um, when we're hurting and broken. We need you. In our joys, we need you, especially now when the truth of your word comes face to face with us. God, for some, this will be a very difficult conversation. For some, it will challenge maybe what they believed up to this point and the convictions that they held, no matter what we may bring in as a preconceived notion or as a lens regarding this topic. So we ask, oh God, that you would pour your grace out onto each of us. Allow us to feel and sense and be mindful of the undeserved favor that is ours in Christ. And then move us, oh God, to extend that grace to somebody else. In the name of Christ, the people of God together said, Amen. Well, if you're brand new here with us, and I see a couple of new faces, uh, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the opportunity to, a privilege, really, of preaching on a weekly basis here at Baby Glen Church. I've been here for the last five years. I just mentioned my wife, Amy, and I, we have uh, two children. Kaya is four, and Kanan is uh, a spit-up machine at 11 weeks. And, um, and I've been in vocational ministry now for more than 20 years. That means this pastoring thing has been my job for more than 20 years. And I've been preaching week in and week out uh, for more than seven years, almost eight years. And this service and this sermon that I am giving today has caused me more stress and anxiety than any sermon I've ever preached before. It was a little bit of a challenging week. And the reason why 
is, is, is your fault, to be quite honest with you. Um, let me tell you why. Um, we published a survey at the end of the summer, this past summer. Do you guys remember summer when it was hot? You remember that? It was, I mean, it's long gone now, but you remember it snowed at my house this week. And it stuck for a couple hours. A four-year-old ran out of her room in her pajamas out to the back patio and began making snow angels on the back patio in her pajamas. You know why? Because we're great parents. That's why. So <laughs> probably has pneumonia, but we'll deal with that later on this week. Um, what was I talking about? Summer. Okay, summer. Summertime, at the end of summer, we published this survey to our congregation and, and to anybody who would want to fill it out. We put it on Facebook, Instagram, email, all that stuff. And we basically asked people, what would you want us to talk about? Are there topics that are kind of trending topics in our culture today that the church has avoided that we probably should address. And people said, yeah, there are, and here are some of them. Mental illness, we talked about that. Science in the Bible, we talked about that. Morality, we talked about that. Wealth, money, power, we've talked about that. And as we looked at the series topics that people said, here's what we want you to talk about, we thought, oh my gosh, this might get awkward. This might get awkward. And one of the topics that people said that they wanted us to address is the topic of sexual identity. So just for this one Sunday, we're changing the title of this entire series, and the entire series is, is now called, This Will Absolutely Get Awkward. <laughs> this is the most challenging topic of the whole series, and again, the most ta- challenging topic of my kind of entire ministry career, if you want to call it that. I, I want to give you a couple caveats before I start. This will get PG this morning. It's very difficult to talk about sexual identity uh, without getting PG. It's not going to get PG-13 or R, but it is going to get PG. So for those of you who have your kids here with you, um, you have been warned. Uh, the second thing I want to tell you is that uh, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation defines sex and gender in this way. They say sex is what's given biologically, the type of uh, kind of reproductive parts that you're born with. Gender is what's performed in culture, male and female type of performance or the the roles that you kind of engage in and feel more comfortable in in culture. So what I want to tell you this morning is that this is a conversation about sexuality and not about gender. This is a conversation not about how we interact with one another in terms of do you feel more comfortable as a male or more comfortable as a female. In other words, we won't be talking about transgenderism much or if at all really. This is a conversation about the types of relationships we engage in in a romantic and sexual way. Does everybody understand what we are and what we are not talking about? Okay, we're talking about sexuality this morning. The reason why we're doing that is because I only have 40 minutes. So I, I can't do them both. I can't do them both. Maybe we'll do gender sometimes, sometime down the road, but we're going to talk about sexuality this morning. But before we move away from that just quick caveat, I want to tell you, if you are in the room and you are transgender or genderqueer or if you uh, have a, 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 sexu- uh, or a sexual identity, a biological sexual identity, and, and you've struggled with that, and maybe the church has made you feel like you should be ashamed or condemned or we don't want you here, or we don't like you here, may I just replace that with this right here? You are extraordinarily valuable to God. I'm so, I, I, can't, I can't apologize on behalf of, 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 the, of the whole church, but, but I'm going to try real quick. <laughs> on behalf of the whole church, we are desperately sorry and we need your forgiveness. There are a couple of, of transgender individuals that come and worship here at Bayview Glen Church. You are welcome here. 
you are welcome here. We're going to talk about affirmation and acceptance and all this. So it gets complicated. It just gets complicated. But I want you to know that you are extraordinarily valuable to God. He loves you in an extravagant and unconditional way. He sent his son to die for you and rescue you and redeem you. And he wants a relationship with you. Okay? Now let's talk about sexual identity. The first thing that I want to recognize here is there is a polarity especially within the church when it comes to addressing issues of sexual identity. What I mean by that is it seems that there are two sides of this coin. One of them is pulling really hard in this direction, and one of them is pulling really hard in that direction, and they tend to get in fights with each other a lot, and there's not a lot of middle ground, and there's not a lot of nuanced conversation involved. There's one group of folks over here that are really advocates of conviction, truth, God's design, and sometimes what happens is they release grace because they're so committed to their convictions. I like, admire, want to emulate the commitment to convictions, but I'm really not comfortable with releasing grace. You understand? Then there's a group of folks maybe on this other side that are so committed to grace, so committed to affirmation and acceptance and allowing anyone and everyone to be a part and, and join in the community. And, and because they're so committed to grace, what they've done is they've released their convictions about what God says about sex and marriage. And, and I'm uncomfortable personally with the polarity that exists in the church. And I began to think this week as I bit my fingernails and chewed the inside of my lip and barely slept at all. I began to think this week, what is it about that polarity that there seems to be these two sides that are railing against one another? What is it about that polarity that drives me so batty when it comes to my read of the scripture? And I want to give you four caveats real quick or four introductory remarks. And we're going to come back to these at the end. Here's why that polarity bothers me. First, disagreeing and disconnecting are not the same thing. Disagreeing and disconnecting are not the same thing. Just because you and I disagree doesn't mean we should dissociate. Do you understand? And it seems to me like the two conflicting sides of this conversation about sexual identity have begun to disagree with each other so much that both sides have concluded because we disagree, we should disconnect. See, I don't buy that. I don't buy it. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we should disconnect because those two things are not the same thing. Number two, desire and action are not the same thing. Desire and action are not the same thing. Just because you desire something doesn't mean you act upon it. Let me just ask you a question. I'm going to ask for a show of hands here. How many of you this week in the last seven days had a desire that you knew full well existed outside of God's commands and God's design for you? You had a desire and you chose not to do it. Ready? One, two, three. Raise your hand. Good. Okay, the rest of you are liars. And that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. So that would be your desire and not act, okay? So here's the thing. Just because I desire something doesn't mean I act upon it. This is why James, in his letter to the church, says this. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. You see, desire precedes, in this case, sin, or desire precedes action. This is going to become critical to us at the end of our time today. Number three, acceptance and affirmation are not the same thing. 
I want to tell you that even Webster's Dictionary defines these two words differently. This is being welcomed into a group. This is being encouraged in a behavior. Those two things are not the same thing. Just because you encourage someone in a behavior doesn't mean you accept them as a person. I've had a lot of teammates over the years playing sports that encouraged me in behavior, but they didn't necessarily accept me as a person. They encouraged me in playing well and contributing on the team, but they didn't necessarily accept all of who I was as a human being. They're interested in my performance. Or, or I have people in my life that accept me as a human being, but don't affirm my behavior. If you think these two things are the same thing, you've never been married before. Because I'm telling you what. There are a lot of things about Amy's behavior that I don't affirm, like a lot of things, right? She affirms all of my, but there are a lot of things. Let me tell you, just one way she's weird. When we, we go to bed at night, my wife takes her feet, and I'm not kidding. All the lights are off. It's like pitch black in the house, quiet as a mouse. And then I can hear my wife take her two little feet, and she starts rubbing them together like this. It's the most annoying thing I've ever heard in my life. She is weird. She's a strange, strange human being. Don't get to know her. She's very peculiar. <laughs> and I don't affirm that behavior, but I accept her as a human being. And it might surprise you. You might think, oh, that's a surface-level thing. It is a surface-level thing. It might surprise you to know that there are even some theological things that Amy and I don't agree about. But it doesn't mean we disconnect. There are some things about one another, maybe some things we wouldn't affirm, but we still accept one another. Those two things are different. We can hold them in tension. Number four, sexuality and identity are not the same thing. So we, we, we've been lied to about this both in the church and in our culture. That, that who you are is your sexuality. And if you say no to sexual desire, no to taking action on that sexual desire, then you are somehow not yet a complete person. That's a lie. That's a lie. Those two things are not the same thing. If you want to know what your identity is, here's your identity. God tells us. He says he created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. That is to say, each and every person in this room, each and every beating heart, each and every pair of eyes, you have been made in the image of God. Please do not let anybody minimize your personhood and boil it down to simply one thing or another, your sexuality, your vocation, your financial stability, or lack thereof, for some of you tend to. Um, those two things are not the same thing. Your identity is that you were made in the image of Almighty God. That's good news. It's good news. So here's the deal. Here's what I want to do. With those caveats in mind, and we're going to revisit them at the end, I want to ask one critical question. We're going to talk about some general principles that Jesus has to say about sexuality and marriage. You might think, or you might have been told, you know, Jesus never really talked about this stuff. He did. He did. He might talk about it in a way that you don't expect him to talk about it, but he did talk about it. So we're going to say, what did Jesus say about these things? Then I want to speak directly to Christians. And really this whole conversation that we're going to have this morning is a little bit of a family conversation. It's a family conversation. So for those of you who maybe don't consider yourself a Christ follower or a friend of yours invited you or something, especially if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, you, you did a courageous thing. I'm so glad that you're here. What I want you to do is listen in to this family conversation we're about to have because I think it will be helpful and I think there will be some principles here that might encourage you as we have this family conversation. And then at the end, I want to talk directly to you. 
So here's the deal. Here's my first question. What did Jesus say about sex and marriage? Okay? And he did talk about it in Matthew 19. Look what happens. The the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Then look at their caveat. For any cause. Because in that culture, it was. You, you just send your wife packing whenever you wanted to do that. And the Pharisees are going, does, does the Mosaic law, does the Old Testament, does, is that okay? And they're not really asking, is that okay? They're trying to trick him. They're trying to pin him down. Watch what Jesus says. Love it. He says, he answered, have you not read? They've read it. They read it. It's a snide remark. Right? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and his mother and his mother, for some of you men, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here in Matthew 19, what Jesus is articulating is God's design for marriage. That's what he's talking about, God's design for marriage. Understand, he is not talking about the province's design for marriage. He's not talking about a federal design for marriage. He's not talking about cultural design for marriage. He's saying that marriage, according to God's design and standards, according to the Bible, this is how it looks. These are the boundaries around that term and that definition. He's talking about God's design. For marriage, and he says God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's God's design for marriage. There's no other way around it. There are no other loopholes. This is how Jesus defines marriage. Then he goes on and he starts to make some comments about our sexuality. He says this. They say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? So why did Moses allow for that if there's supposed to be one man, one woman for life? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, really because you're jerks and you can't get over and forgive and work it through. Moses made a condition here. He allowed you to to divorce your wives, from, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, that's not God's design. Then Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, so infidelity, sex outside of marriage, it, that's the only biblical condition, a justifiable divorce, and marries another, commits adultery. So this is the second thing Jesus is saying here, is that God's design for sex is one man and one woman for life. One man and one woman for life. He is affirming the Mosaic law and he's affirming the Old Testament definition of marriage. And you may hear people say things like, you know what? Uh, Jesus never talked specifically about homosexuality. Jesus never talked specifically about other kind of different sexualities and he never condemned those specifically. The reality is because he affirms God's design for marriage as one man and one woman for life, life, he therefore condemns all its deviations. So if there were 104-year-olds up here on this platform, and you asked me which one was my daughter, I could do it in two ways, right? I could say, not him, not her, not him, not her, not him, not her, not him, not her, 99 times, and then get to the last one, everybody go, okay, then it must be her, right? Or I could tell you, that's her. And I'll be frank with you. I didn't say this in the first service, but now I want to say it. The church has been really good at telling people what we're against, right? Well, that, we're against that and that. Oh, yeah, we're against that. That that thing, we're against that thing. 
And Jesus comes along and he says, you know what? God's design, the truth, reality, is God's design for marriage is one man and one woman for life. God's design for sex is one man and one woman for life. Then the disciples, who I relate to, <laughs> oh, man, I'm laughing because I know what's coming. Watch, watch what the disciples ask. Look, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> That's a legitimate comment, right? For life, man, and lifespans were much shorter back then. Even then it was like, 15 years, I don't think I could do that. And Jesus is going, yeah, you're a bunch of, you're lucky anybody likes you, right? I mean, if you know the disciples at all. So here, here's how Jesus responds. He says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to whom, to whom it is given. So Jesus is about to say something about those who would say, you know what? One man, one woman for life, marriage and sex, that's not me. I'm this over here, and I'm not saying what this over here is. I'm, there's a bunch of things that's not that. And, he's gonna, and he, says, he says, look, not everyone can receive this saying. In other words, Jesus is saying, buckle up, this is going to get awkward. Okay, then he says, but only to those whom it is given. So in other words, if that's you, one man and one woman for life, if that's you, if that's what you desire, or if that's the relationship that you're engaged in, why are you paying attention to all these other people out here and what God may or may not say to them? He's saying, I give it to them and they're responsible for it, not you. And it's going to be hard for them. It's going to be challenging. But it's their responsibility, not yours. And here's the challenging thing Jesus says. He says, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So the first thing that Jesus says is he talks about eunuchs. Okay, so back then that was a very specific type of person. But we could kind of put a general blanket statement and say that is someone who is not acting on sexual desire. Either they don't have sexual desire to act on or they have sexual desire and they've chosen not to act on it. That would be a eunuch, a blanket statement for eunuch. And Jesus says there are three different types of those. There are those who have been so from birth. In other words, the way they were born, physically, mentally, sexually, spiritually, whatever, they are not able to or they do not desire to engage in a sexual relationship. Some have been, no, been that way since the way they were born. I know some of those. Two, he says, there are some who have been made eunuchs by men. In other words, the circumstances of their life have caused them not to be able to engage in a one man, four woman, one, one man, one woman, four life covenant relationship. Therefore, they do not act on sexual desire because they have not yet engaged in that relationship. Number three, he says, there are some who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there are some who either don't have sexual desire or do have sexual desire and have understood what God's design for sex and marriage is and have chosen for the sake of the kingdom of heaven not to engage that sexual desire and act upon that sexual desire. In other words, there are some who have chosen celibacy. Then, then, then Jesus says the exact same thing he just said. Let the one who is able to receive this, let it receive it. Didn't I tell you that was going to be hard? That's some hard stuff. But what Jesus is also confirming here, and I think this is fascinating, because our culture would lie to us and tell us this is not true, but Jesus is also saying this, that sex is not the key to joy. 
man, oh man, do we live in a culture where we are told on a regular basis that if you don't act on your sexual desires, you will not live a joyful, happy, fulfilled life. Sex is absolutely not the key to joy. Your relationship with your creator, Jesus, that's the key to joy. But Jesus says you cannot act on, you can choose not to act on those sexual desires or because of circumstances not act on those sexual desires or because of some way you were born not act on those sexual desires. But that will not rob you of your joy because your joy is not rooted in that. So here's what we've done. We've affirmed God's design for marriage and God's design for sex. That's what we've done. Now I want to take you to one passage in the New Testament because there are about six places in Scripture, give or take, that uh, address homosexuality, homosexual practice specifically. About six. And that's pretty generous. But I want to take you to one of them and I want to show you what Paul does at the beginning of Romans. And I want you to know this is specifically for Christians. For those of you who maybe are not Christ followers, that's, that's great. We are so glad that you're here. Please listen in because I think there'll be some principles here. But this is specifically for Christians. And Paul begins Romans 1, which is uh, 15 chapters or 16 chapters of theological brilliance. Martin Luther once said, if, if the New Testament is a diamond, Romans is the brightest part. <laughs> It's a fantastic book, a very systematic book. And what Paul begins to do is diagnose the global human condition. He says all of humanity is like this. And he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to him shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relationships for those who are contrary to nature. What does Paul mean by nature? What he's saying here is God's design is one man and one woman for life. And, and women exchanged what God had designed for something that was not what God designed, namely sexual relationships with one another. He goes on. He says, And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, there might be some out there that suggest that the Bible condemns sexually exploitative relationships, especially sexually exploitative relationships that are between two individuals of the same gender. But what Paul is doing here is he's talking about about passion for one another. These are mutual relationships that Paul says are against God's original design. Men committing shameless acts with other men and receiving in themselves the penalty for their error. In other words, what Paul has done here is he's just affirmed Jesus and the Mosaic law in terms of their definition of sex and marriage that is within God's design. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. <laughs> There's one in here. You, you ever watch Sesame Street where they did the, one of these kids is doing his own thing, one of these kids is not the same. Do you ever watch that? 
Okay, well, then that was a stupid joke. Um, so he's about to list a bunch of sins, right? He's about to list a bunch of sins. I want you to, one of these kids is doing his own thing. One of these kids is not the same, okay? Just pick out which one it is. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This one's funny to me, isn't it? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and you're disobedient to your parents as well. I mean, he just, that's in there. It's like one of these kids is doing his own thing. I just think that's funny. Okay, though. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, listen, Paul just said a lot of stuff there, didn't he? Oh, my gosh, he said a lot of stuff. So I want to point out one thing that never dawned on me until I read it over and over this week and read some commentaries. What happens is Paul diagnoses the human condition, and he says right in the middle of that, here's where humanity is at spiritually. Right in the middle of that conversation, he says this. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. And following that verse, he lists off all those things, boastful, arrogant, rude, disobedient to parents, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And he says, right before he lists that, therefore. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, every time there's a therefore in the scripture, you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore, right. So here's what Paul is doing. He's saying, he's saying something happened. Therefore, people behave this way that's outside of God's plan and God's design. Let me do it one more time. Something happened. Something happened. Therefore, people behave and act outside of God's design. In other words, what Paul is affirming here is that sin is symptomatic. Sinful behaviors, uh, sexually sinful behaviors are symptomatic. They're not the real problem. The real problem lies back here, and therefore it shows itself in the symptoms of sin. Let me, let me put it this way. If I went into the doctor and I told the doctor I never had chicken pox when I was a kid, which is true, never had chicken pox when I was a kid, and I had red spots all over my body that were really itchy and I had a fever, and the doctor gave me some sort of makeup to cover up those red spots, would you think he was a good doctor or a bad doctor? A bad doctor, right, because he's addressing the symptoms. He's just trying to conceal the symptoms. Paul's saying, let's not conceal the symptoms. Let's let the symptoms help us diagnose the real problem. And the real problem in that case is chickenpox, so let's treat that. So here are some of those symptoms. They're haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, etc., etc., etc. Sin is symptomatic is what Paul is saying. So that begs the question, what's the disease? If those are the symptoms, if we now diagnose the symptoms, what is it that's broken? What is it that happened back here that caused that therefore? And Paul tells us in those two verses preceding the therefore, here's what Paul says. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Nor did they give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. There is a progression here. They knew God, but they didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. And as a result, their minds were darkened. They became futile in their thinking. And as a result, it works itself out here. In other words, your sexual sin is not the root of your problem. 
Your boasting is not the root of your problem. Your gossiping, your greed, that is not the root of your problem. Rebellion is the root of your problem. What happens back here is the root. And we in the church have gotten too focused on trying to deal with a bunch of symptoms. That's called the gospel of behavior modification. And the reality is Jesus enters in and he says, no, 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 no. What I want to do is draw you back to the king and inaugurate his kingdom and give you a relationship with God such that the spirit of God moves and shifts those behaviors. Now, if I were Paul and I were in a bad mood, like a judgmental mood, my next verse would say, therefore, therefore, you all are sinners and you're going to hell, hell, hell. Okay? Paul's not going to say that because he's a gracious guy. Okay? Now, let, let me put myself in a gracious mood. A gracious mood. My next verse would say, therefore, you all are sinners in need of a Savior, but while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And that's true. And that's true. That would be a gracious next verse. But watch what Paul does. He does not talk about those people out there. What does he say? He says, therefore, you. And all of us should say, oh, darn it. Because he's just held up a mirror. And he's done this preaching trick where you get people riled up, you know, ruthless, faithless, heartless, disobedient to parents, all those other things. And we go, yeah, the world out there and culture out there and Facebook and all the problems that we see and people posting the things that they do. And the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And this is a mess. And those people out there, and Paul goes, no, therefore, you people, Christians, Church people, he says, you have no excuse for every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys, I feel like I just say, say amen and go. I'm serious. Did Paul not just, he reels us in and we gets us all riled up and then he goes, but you are judging people. Bam. And you practice the very same things. The reality is the church, I mean, we're, we're really great at putting our finger on somebody else's sexual brokenness, but we're broken sexually too. Busted up. This is why Jesus tells the story about the man that goes in and he owes this guy a great debt, a debt that he can never pay back. And he says, please forgive me, please forgive the debt, please forgive the debt. And the man says, okay, I forgive you, go. And he walks outside, and the moment he walks outside, he sees somebody that owes him a couple of bucks. And he runs over to him, and he grabs him by the neck, and he begins to choke him. And he says, pay me what you owe. And when the first man finds out about that, what that man had done, he had him arrested and put in prison. The reason Jesus tells this story is to say, look, if you don't understand that you are a broken sinner in need of a Savior as much or more than any other person on the planet, then you are Desperately out of touch with the gospel. Desperately out of touch with the gospel. You have no excuse and no right to judge. I'm going to talk to Christians now. Keep talking to Christians. In the Bible, there are six. Six places. Sodom and Gomorrah is not one of them, by the way. Totally irrelevant to that conversation. Six places that talk about 
homosexual desire and homosexual activity specifically. Activity specifically, six places. There are over 2,000 that talk about giving money to the poor and needy. I would just apologize again to the LGBTQ community and our brothers and sisters uh, and friends in that community. A lot of times you come to church and you start to get introduced to Jesus and what the church wants to tell you is that the very first thing God wants to do when you come to church or when you come to Jesus is ungay you. That's, a hor- that's horrible. I mean, according to these numbers, the very first thing God wants to do is unstingy you. <laughs> right? Just according to those numbers. Now let's go back to the four, very first four things we said. Ready? Disagreeing and disconnecting are not the same thing. Just because I disagree with somebody on the biblical definition of marriage doesn't mean I have to disconnect from them. We've done too much of that, church people. We've done too much of that disconnecting. We've been too, too much of that worrying. You know what? I disagree, I disagree, I disagree. And I've got to disconnect from this person. Uh, and you know what? It was uh, the 20th anniversary of young Matthew Shepard being beaten and killed in part because of his sexuality just a couple of weeks ago. And the church should have been up, and, up in arms when that happened. When those, in our, uh, those friends in, our, in the LGBTQ community, when you are mistreated, by the world, when you are mistreated and forgotten about and abused, the church should be on your team. We should have your back. Even if we disagree, we should not disconnect. And we're sorry, we failed you. And here at Baby Glen Church, we're going to do our best to correct it. Number two, desire and action are not the same thing. That means that can somebody be gay and be a Christian? Could somebody be gay and be a pastor? That's like asking, could somebody be prideful and be a Christian? Could somebody be envious and be a Christian? Just because you have that desire doesn't mean you've acted on it. There are plenty of people in my life that have desires. I have desires. You have desires, at least those of you who raised your hand, that exist outside of God's design for you and outside of God's plan. But action is a different thing. I know it's difficult to hear, but what Jesus would say is, biblically, your two options when it comes to sexuality and marriage are one man, one woman for life or celibacy. Those are your two options. I know that's difficult. But I have plenty of friends that have chosen not to act on their sexual desire because they want to honor God. And in doing so, in choosing not to act on that desire, they have brought their sexuality now under the reign of Christ and honored him as king. Number three, acceptance and affirmation are not the same thing. This is, you are welcome here. This is, we would encourage that behavior. Anyone and everyone is welcome at Bayview Glen Church. But I want you to know that the Christian community, the church, is not designed to condone and comfort and encourage. It's designed as a learning and discipling environment. So that's what we do. But everyone is welcome to come and grow and learn here and be a disciple of Christ. Number four, sexuality and identity are not the same thing. We've so pinned, especially in our hypersexualized culture, so pinned our identity on our sexuality. And the reality is your identity is that you were made in the image of God. Now, I could talk all day about what it means to hold convictions and yet show grace. 
to not get involved in that polarizing discussion, but to live a life that is both gracious and truthful. And I could give you a lot of examples. But I I got a friend uh, who's maybe an even better example. Been a part of this community of faith for about 15 years. He served on our elder board. He served on a number of serve teams. And this idea of holding convictions and being gracious at the same time really met him in a unique way. And I wanted you to hear his story. So turn your eyes on the screens behind me. Yeah, I, I'm Will Wright. And uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. But I'm um, blessed to be here. And I want to share a bit of my story, a bit of our story. Uh, you know, when I as growing up, I grew up in a pretty conservative household. We were brethren, church, denomination, brethren. Um, you know, church on Wednesday, twice on Sunday, and, you know, no TV till I was 16. We literally didn't have one, right? And no music on Sunday, that kind of thing. But but just a great environment, just a great uh, holistic place. And my parents were involved, similar to me. And it was it was strict, sure, you know, and it was it was conservative, if you, however you want to couch that. But it was great, and we learned a lot, and it was a good place. And, you know, I went to a brethren church myself as a, as a young adult, uh, I, I stepped away a little bit. Uh, you know, part of my, my career was in policing. I spent 22 years uh, in policing, and it was a couple years there. I was, I was undercover in the drug squad for three years, and I really wasn't attending church much, but we came back to that and, and uh, ended up here, which has been a great spot. Yeah, I got, or we, <laughs> wasn't just me, Ann and I have three great kids, and, you know, just amazing, but uh, three. So Andrew is 24, the youngest. Madeline's 26 and Brandon's 32 and just about the best kids you could ask for love them just amazing they love us and just great relationships all around and they love each other and and it's a it's a great family but just a bit about Brandon my eldest you know when he was well just before 19 really thought maybe something going going on with him and then he moved out and a short time later, he had moved in with another man. And we were not 100% sure about where this was going. And then a short time after that, we had a conversation with him. And he came out to us as a gay man. You know, I'll tell you, when it was first brought to me, and when we first had that conversation, it was so... <laughs> like... what? Seriously? Wow. You're kidding me, right? I mean, I, I, I had thought maybe something was going on, but then when you get confronted with that by your son, and you're, I don't know if the right word, but from where I came from, both spiritually and policing and just me thinking who I was, and then your son says this. So I had to, I had to really work through that and, and you know, Brandon was gracious and we have a great relationship today, but there was, there was probably a good year where I was wrestling with all of this and he was trying to figure himself out because it wasn't easy for him either, right? And, and, and as a family and with his two siblings and so on and, you know, but we came through the other side, you know, listening, listening to what God would have us do. What I see my message as being is, okay, you may have these convictions, but you have no right not to love over here. 
to accept isn't to exclude something else. You know, I don't think Jesus is going to have you not love. Was that ever written? Where was that? Where was that piece? But I had to walk through a series of emotions to get to where, where I think everyone should be, is to love unconditionally, right? Err on the side of grace, love. And, you know, Brandon's amazing. What, what's, what's that got to do with his sexuality? And, you know, to that point, Brandon knows my convictions, our convictions. But just like any other thing your kid or somebody does, you don't like that behavior. And I've sat down many times with them and said, you know, listen, I don't agree with that behavior. But I love you anyways. I'm always going to love you. So Brandon knows my, our convictions, but he knows I love him. And for me to, to work through that and to come out today where, you know, he's married to a, a great guy. and uh, They were over. They were just over on the weekend and just fantastic. And to, to know that, you know, it's okay to, with him. He knows my convictions and he, he gets that. But to know that there's still love, there's still acceptance, that everyone should be treated the same. And I'm not here to punish or do something or, you know, hey, that's not on me. But what is on me, what is on maybe us, right? is to love and cherish and accept who people are for what they are. took two people a lot of courage to share that story. Uh, Will and Brandon. <laughs> Would you thank those guys for being willing to do that? <laughs> Friends, holding on to truth and conviction and living a life of grace is not easy. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. <laughs> it's not easy, but it's what God has called us to to hold our convictions, and to be a loving people that are his hands and feet, carrying his mission of grace and his message of grace forward in the world. Last thing I want to tell you, LGBTQ community, we just bookended it with these, these two statements, or these, this same statement to start and to finish. Simply this, you're extraordinarily valuable to God, and you're valuable to us, and you're welcome here. As we close together, we've talked a lot about identity today. One thing is our ushers are going to come forward and receive an offering. If you are brand new here with us, please, please don't feel any obligation to give. It's just an act of worship for those who call this place home. But because, because we've talked about a lot about identity today, we are going to declare our identity in this next song. Apart from our sexuality, apart from our vocation, apart from everything else, we are children of God, and we're going to declare that together. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your truth to us. Thank you for your clarity. Thank you for your word. God, may we be a people that wrestle with these truths. Maybe not always coming out on the other side, you know, squeaky clean or whatever, because this life can be a little bit messy and grace can be a little bit messy sometimes. But people who hold our convictions and extend grace and love so that the world may know that you are a God of grace and have extended grace to them. We pray you accept uh, these offerings now, financial offerings, do something eternal with this temporal gift. 
God, draw hearts to you as we declare our identity in Christ's name. The people of God together said, amen. Remain seated, if you would, as the ushers receive an offering, and then the worship team will invite us to stand and join them shortly. Amen.